Today, May 5th, 2019, the Nats may have pulled out a thrilling win last night, but with injuries mounting, they're still in trouble. They fired the pitching coach. Could the manager and GM be next? Plus, is CeCe Sabathia a Hall of Famer? And Jake and John's pet players. From Ann Arbor, Michigan, it's Jacob Rash. From Bethesda, Maryland, it's Johnny Rash. This is the Rashcast with Jake and John. Hi, and welcome to the Rashcast with Jake and John. I'm Jake. And I'm Johnny. So, a uh, lot to talk about this week. Another crazy week in Nationals baseball. The Nats, from the time we last recorded this podcast, uh, Sunday before the game, they went 3-4, and four, which... Doesn't sound that bad until you realize what happened this week. Uh, so we were going to be much more critical and savage the team, and we still are. But uh, before we do that, we do have to talk about yesterday's game, which was, yeah, pretty crazy. Uh, yeah, that was. I mean, that was the second time a Philly game has went on for like a crazy game like that. Uh, we had the earlier game where we came back to win. We were down six to one, but this game was also. You know, just as wild. Um, you know, if you weren't watching, that's when ten to eight. No, nine to. What was the score? Nine to eight. Ten to there eight was go. right. No, you got it right the first time. Never Good. doubt yourself, John. Thank you, thank you. Um, uh, and in the game, you know, Corbin, Patrick Corbin pitched 118 pitches. You know, had a very gutsy performance. Didn't have his best stuff to start off the game. Found it throughout the game, uh, without even that. What and left the game with a tie game. Then. The bullpen came Well, not in. only that, but he, he struck out, you know, with second and third one out, he struck out Hernandez and McCutcheon on sliders. It was pretty impressive. It was, I I doubted the move when it happened. Like, I, I could could have easily seen it going badly, considering he was at 110 pitches. But, you know what? I mean, he's your $140 million man if, you know, if he's not the best pitcher to pitch in those situations, then I don't know who is. The thing is, coming in, even though it was second and third, uh, he, I mean, it was first and second, one out. No, second and third, one out. He still looked yes. good. You know, the the one, the Michael Franco reached on a squibber right in front of the mound, and then Sean Rodriguez walked in a bunch of really good pitches, just a good at bat from Rodriguez. Um so, you know, he still had his location, still looked really good. So I felt comfortable with the move, and the slider was still on point at that point, and, it, you know, it worked out well. So that was a good move from Davey. He made more good than bad moves yesterday. Yes. Uh, I'd say his only really bad move yesterday was leaving Joe Ross in to get pummeled for some reason. I don't know why he left Ross in when the score – I mean, I – after the Real Muto double, he really should have taken him out. But that's we're gonna harp on this. But yeah, anyway, yeah. the Nats come back. They hit two homers, a Kurt Suzuki home run. That was a great move by Davey. That was that was uh, a move that had to be made. To, yeah, yeah, being willing to pinch hit a second catcher with a two man bench in uh-huh. that situation, recognizing that was the last best chance he was gonna get. Yeah. Uh, so the Nats won. Uh, they lost. Matt Adams and Michael A. Taylor. I don't know how serious the Taylor injury is. 
uh, or the Adams injury. We are recording again at it's now eleven twenty two a.m. So no yeah. roster moves have been announced. Looks like Jake uh, Knoll is coming to Philadelphia, though, so it means one of them's going to the IL. I would imagine we put both of them on the IL because I don't know how long we could survive with a three-man bench. Well, uh, I mean, it depends on how hurt Taylor is. I I heard yesterday that Adams couldn't lift his shoulder above his body, which not great. is not good. Not good no. at all. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you got to put at least one of them on the I.L. There's no yeah. sense putting both of them because you don't have any more position players. It's not like there's anyone you can call up. The thing is, if Taylor's down for a few days, you only you don't have an extra outfielder. You have three outfielders. You have Adrian Sanchez, who can sure. play left field. That's the sure. best you got, man. I mean, like, there aren't any more position players. The team's depleted right now, which is actually yeah. a, a nice segue into our, our next point. Uh, about how much trouble the Nats are in. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the thing I'm concerned about, this is a gauntlet of a road trip, but if they end up, I mean, 2-8, and eight, which is possible, it's less possible now that they actually won last night. Uh, it was more possible in the top of the eighth inning when I got mad and rage quit last night's game. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, if they go two and eight, or even three and seven, if they go three and seven, uh, they're at sixteen and twenty-four on the season. Uh, and uh, the thing to remember about that is that most of—I mean, not most of the losses, but a lot of the losses happened when the team was mostly pretty healthy. Uh, and the thing I'm concerned about is that you know after a forty-game stretch when they're you know possibly eight games under five hundred that the injuries might end up saving Davey Martinez's job when they really shouldn't. Uh, uh, now, the Nats have they've shown some willingness. They, they fired uh, pitching coach Derek Lillenquist on Thursday. Yeah. That was a good move. In my opinion, that was the move that needed to be made. Um, even though the bullpen's starting to look a little better, it, it was a move that sh- I thought should have been made last off- in the offseason. You know, they ended up bringing back him and the rest of the coaching staff. And then, you know, the bullpen was in disarray at the beginning of the year. And so you had to make that move. And, you know, a lot of national guys, national beat writers or reporters are like Ken Rosenthal was very uh, weirded out by that move, thought it was a, a strange move. But the people in the organization, a lot of people seem to understand. I was listening to um, the postgame show on two, on Thursday when, right after they announced it with uh, Phil Wood. And he said, you know, he thought it was weird reading the postmortems on the team about how nobody mentioned, none of the pitchers mentioned how much I loved working with uh, Willowquist uh, or how much I liked working with him. And I think there was a growing sense in the organization that, you know, from reading a bunch of, you know, reports <coughs> afterwards that Willowquist was kind of lazy. He was very hands-off, which is good in some respects, but when a team is struggling – you need someone who's more hands-on and willing to work with pitchers. Uh, and another thing was the whole Trevor Rosenthal situation. I would put money on the fact that Lilliquist pushed hard for Rosenthal. Lilliquist was his pitching coach in St. Louis, and he thought he probably—I assume—he thought that he could work with him here in, in, in D.C., which is why I would think that the Nats signed him. 
because they had a familiar face with, to work with him. And, you know, we all know how that went. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, there were so many people I would have fired at the end of last season. I mean, obviously, you know, there are, there are reasons to keep on Davy Martinez. I would have fired him at the end of last season, but that's my personal preference. Uh, I understand why the Nats kept him on. But, that being said, there were communication issues throughout, I mean, throughout the dugout, not just, you know, in the bullpen, but also among position players. There was a lot of grousing from, you know, Nats players last year about how they had trouble, you know, even if they liked Davey Martinez personally, they had trouble communicating with him. Uh, and at the end of the day, those things come down to both the pitching coach and the bench coach. And, it, you know, it was always a very peculiar move to add a bench coach in Chip Hale who had neither a connection to the manager in Davey Martinez or a connection to the clubhouse. They just sort of brought in this guy who no one knew when the most important aspect of a bench coach is facilitating communication. If you're going to have a new manager someone who no one on the team really knows, you know, bringing in a stranger as a bench coach is such an odd move. Uh, but, I mean, the thing I want to address is that, you know, everyone's sort of in the national press talking about this as an odd move, uh, as in this is just the Nats' M.O. The Nats have not fired a coach midseason since 2013, when they fired Rick Eckstein. Uh, this isn't something that they do often. And more importantly than that, there were both qualitative reasons and substantive reasons for firing Lilliquist, you know, and for firing him now as opposed to in October. You know, the, the Trevor Rosenthal and the bullpen situation being first among them. And this functions as a warning shot across the bow of, you know, the rest of the coaching staff and the team to let them know that, you know, there will be consequences for their failure. Yeah. And, you know, and also listening to Rizzo talk uh, post-game, uh, post-firing, I mean, about the, the situation at hand, and he expressed nothing but confidence in, in Davey Martinez. And for a guy like Rizzo, I, I think you you had to do that, even though we don't like him. This is, for all intents and purposes, Davey Martinez is Mike Rizzo's man. Um, you know, this was Rizzo's decision to bring in Martinez. Dave, uh, Rizzo's always liked Martinez since he interviewed in 2013. Uh, and this was a... We talk about, you know, the learners being cheap on managers... And we talk about you know how we let go of Dusty because we didn't want to pay him. And yeah, Rizzo wanted to keep Dusty around. He wanted to, he wanted to have him as manager. But after that decision, there were plenty of other managers out there who we could have gotten instead of Davey Martinez. First year managers who would have come at the cheap: Alex Cora, who signed with, who was hired by the Red Sox; Aaron Boone, who was hired by the Yankees. You know, Boone was only going to go to the Yankees, I assume, because he was the only place he interviewed. 
But you know, Cora would have been a great fit with the Nats. Uh, it well, would have so, come so out Cora expensive. had signed with the the Red Sox before uh, the Nats started. Like he, he yeah, he signed uh, in mid October before. But, the Nats but what I'm saying is that there are options out there uh, for cheaper. Um, and I mean, it's not it's not an issue of I mean, like Davey Martinez or for just for just not, as cheap. I mean. For justice, yeah, he's not he's not in the bottom five in terms of manager salary. He's in the bottom no. ten, but not the bottom five. Uh, there are, as of last year, there were twenty one managers making a million and a half dollars a season or less. Uh, basically, you know, if, if you don't want to pay a manager the you know the proven respected veteran manager salary. Which is somewhere in the area of you know three to six million. If you're not interested in that, uh, you basically have your pick of the litter for other guys. So, so just because the ownership group were the ones who decided to fire Dusty doesn't mean Rizzo owns Davey any less because he had so many other choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there are, and the decision to hire Davey, you know, as I said. You know, this falls on Rizzo. And so I think this is Rizzo's fault. You know, if Davey fails, then Rizzo fails too. Um, and now the question comes down to if the season ends up poorly, what do the Nats do with Rizzo, with Mike Rizzo? Uh, he has one more year left on his contract after this year. Uh, and, you know, back-to-back seasons where you miss the playoffs, where you're spending as much money as we are, you know, in the eyes of ownership might not be acceptable. And uh, I mean, in the eyes of, of the fan base, it's not acceptable either. But the question yeah. is, who bears responsibility for it? And I think, yeah. especially with this season, you can point to specific mistakes that Mike Rizzo has made that have doomed the season. You know, the, the decision to sign Trevor Rosenthal instead of any Greg one Holland. of a number of healthy. Like arms. Greg Holland, I mean, you had, who you could have had fantastic this year. And the Nats fixed last year, and we let go who was, you know, signed for three million dollars, as opposed to seven million, which we gave to Rosenthal. Well, let's let's be clear about this. So Rosenthal, if all the escalators in his contract get met, which they won't because he's pitching like crap, uh, if they did get met, it would have been fifteen million dollars. Yeah. Uh, Adam Adovino signed for nine million. Uh, Greg Holland signed for three million. You could have had both of them for the uh-huh. price of of Trevor Rosenthal. So that was a a pretty big mistake from yes. Mike Rizzo. Uh, the bullpen performance is is I mean yes, Davy's bullpen management aside, it's mostly on Rizzo. The decision to hire Davy is mostly on Rizzo. Uh, you know the the poor depth at positional positional depth the poor outfield depth especially which hasn't really hurt the nets yet but i mean obviously now uh considering that there's a very good chance that andrew stevenson starts for a little while uh that that's on rizzo as well uh so you you gotta sort of the problem with rizzo is you gotta look at the body of work and the man has a very impressive body of work, even if he's 
made some poor decisions uh, recently. Uh, he's still won nearly every trade he's ever made. I mean, even the arguably the worst trade he ever made. Uh, you could either look at the the Doolittle Madsen for. Uh, I mean, so the three trades that he's made that have maybe gone not as well as you would hope. The Adam Eaton trade, the Doolittle for Trinan trade, uh, and the Rivero slash Vasquez for Melanson trade, each very justifiable in its time and each not as painful as you would, you know, they're not the types of moves that you really regret in terms of destroying or decimating a franchise. I mean, a lot of that's because of injury. Uh, Dane Dunning got hurt this year. Jesus Luzardo's got a shoulder injury. But the now, point is, and also Trinan now too his elbow injury, his elbow in, uh, discomfort, which is not good. Yeah, after a really bad outing in Toronto. But uh, yeah, I mean, Rizzo has never made a trade that has burned the franchise, and he's made hundreds of them that have. I mean, even small ones, even the the Christian Guzman for Tanner Roark trade that have you know really helped the team. Uh, so. It's just, it's hard to say, you know, based on Mike Rizzo's body of work, based on the way that he works with a very difficult ownership group, uh, an ownership group that, you know, while not being sort of uh, loath to spend money, they have a very strange ownership structure. You know, everything has to go through their board, they're very controlling, and Rizzo's found a way to work with that. Uh, so Rizzo is clearly in the top half of GMs league-wide, and he's very good working with this ownership group in a way that maybe another GM who might be just as good as Rizzo might not be. Uh, but by that same token, he's made some serious mistakes that have really hurt this team this year. Yeah. So what would you do with Rizzo? I keep him. I mean, I, I I still like Rizzo. Yeah, he's made some mistakes this year. But again, that body of work, he's he's made a lot of great moves. And there, I think, you know, the Davey decision is probably his worst decision he's ever made, was bringing in Davey yeah. Martinez. But He's I shown still, absolutely no skill at hiring a manager. No. Uh, I mean, there's two managers he's hired were Matt Williams and Davey Martinez. Those are his well, and he hired those... Dusty, but only after the guy he actually wanted turned him down. Exactly. Um so I still keep him, you know, he as you said, he's one of the best GMs in baseball. He's he's never really lost a trade, which is impressive. Um even in the even in the Trinan trade, we still did Trinan I still hold true that he was never going to succeed in dc and he needed a place where he could kind of pitch in obscurity for a little bit and that's exactly what happened with oakland where he had a season a half a season just kind of pitch and that's ex- and he pitched great in oakland and i never thought trident was going to succeed in dc i thought he needed a scene cha- uh, scenery change um and so and we still got an all-star closer out of it in doolittle so and madsen it was very good for one half of a year yeah before Davey broke him in April of last I mean, year. 
arguably the worst trade he's made is the Felipe Rivero for. Um, I will defend that to my death. Mark I, I mean, not to be melodramatic about it, but that was. Uh, I mean, it was very necessary at the time. Rivero yeah. was struggling at the time. The Nats got a half season of a, you know, a viable ace closer. Yeah. Obviously, things would have been different if they had won the World Series that year, uh-huh. which they might have had Strasburg not gone down. And if Ramos had but, gone down, too. Yes, that was... Ugh. And they yeah. still probably played their best postseason series as a franchise in 2016. Uh-huh. Even, you know, they were outgunned in terms of talent, and they still showed up and came within a run of winning. Yep. So... You know, it's it's. I'd still hang on to Rizzo. You're not going to get a better GM than him, out on the market. Uh, I don't think there is one unless you get Dombrowski from Boston. I don't think you'll get anyone better than Rizzo. Uh, so that's it for the Nats this week. Let's move on to more. Uh, you know, Cheery there's a bunch of other stuff happening in baseball. Like Cece Sabathia uh, reached a milestone this week. He got three thousand strikeouts against the Diamondbacks uh, in his career. And it brought up a conversation that a lot of people started talking about is whether or not CeCe Sabathia is a Hall of Famer. Uh, and he's very close. He's borderline. He's at career 60 wins above, uh, 63.2 wins above replacement. Uh, you know, it said 3,000 strikeouts. Career 369 ERA, uh, 117 ERA plus. So... What do you think? Is CC Sabathia a Hall of Famer? I say yes. I think I understand why people think it's close, but I think it's pretty clear that he is. Uh, the way that I see it, you know, he's been very good for a large part of his career. Uh, you know, maybe not fantastic. Uh, you know, there's. There's an argument of longevity. The guy has pitched now 19 seasons. Uh, Other than 2014, he's been mostly healthy in his career. Uh, I mean, he's going to be a 250-game winner, which in the era that he pitched is very impressive. Uh, Yeah, I understand that a 3.69 ERA and a 117 ERA plus doesn't jump off the uh, page. Uh, but the thing that makes him stand out for me is that unlike some other guys that have very similar stats, I'm thinking of Andy Pettit, uh, who's got the same exact ERA plus as him, 117, also 250 wins. Uh, the difference between the two is that for a three-year period in his career, Cesar Sabathia was the unquestioned best pitcher in baseball from 2007 to 2009. He won a Cy Young. He single-handedly put the Milwaukee Brewers on his back and managed to drag them kicking and screaming to the playoffs. Uh, I mean, we should really talk about that season because he, in just 17 starts with the Brewers, he had seven complete games, which is something I don't think we'll ever see we'll never see a seven complete game season again and that was a half season uh but uh and then he was fourth in the signing voting nine won 19 games and won a championship with the yankees in 2009 so he you know the 
the period of utter dominance isn't maybe as long as you would like to see for a surefire, you know, first ballot Hall of Famer. But to me, the fact that he was good for so long, combined with the fact that he was absolutely great for a short period of time, makes him a Hall of Famer. Yeah, here here's the argument against is is that you know he yeah he had a short peak but he's had a lot of just middling years he's he's pitched uh, he's he's played nineteen years and yeah you said the three year peak where he was the best player he's also had sixteen other seasons I think yeah the closest comparison is Andy Pettit um, their stats are nearly identical uh, both at one seventeen ERA plus. You know, Sabathia's got a little bit of a lower ERA. Pettit pitched a little bit more of the steroid era. And another comp, if you want to look for a Hall of Fame comparison, is Mike Lucina, the guy who's in the Hall, who took many years to get in the Hall of Fame. Um, uh, three Messina's got three six eight ERA. Sabathia's got three six nine ERA. Um, Messina's got a little bit of a higher ERA plus. And the thing with Messina. Is that Musina, to me? Musina pitched in a harder era to pitch in. His his bulk of his career was during the peak of the steroid era, and so and the three. I think I think that even ERA plus underrates him in that regard because not only was he pitching in the height of the steroid era, pitched his entire career in the AL East. The AL East and the AL uh, East, yeah. Right, and ERA plus doesn't take that into account. Doesn't take the hitters he faced into account. Yeah. So I mean. Yeah, I, I think Musino was a sure shot Hall of Famer, and it's, and I, it's sort I, of a shame that it took him this long. But if you're looking at how the voters see these things, they look at you know, Sabathia's. Uh, Sabathia is a guy who I think will struggle to get in the Hall, just with the vote with how the voters vote, looking at how Musina got in. Now, yes, Sabathia. Uh, looking at how many votes Pettit got last year. Yeah. Uh, now looking at Sebastian, yeah, his barely cracked 10%. Yeah. He barely, yeah. So the thing with Pettit though, is that he did get popped. Uh, he was on the Mitchell report. And so that might change the reputation on him and whether or not he'd get Pettit? in. Yeah. Pettit. Oh. Yeah. So right. that, that's, that's to me the reason why Pettit won't get into the hall of fame, but there is a, you know, Sabathia is close. He is close to being a Hall of Famer. You know, I was making the argument against. Personally, I believe he should be in the Hall of Fame, but uh, well, it's going to be close. Let, it's let me phrase years. it a different way. If if CC Sabathia doesn't get in from this era, from this generation, who does? Uh, Verlander. Okay. Kershaw. Uh, and Scherzer, and that's probably Scherzer. it. Scherzer. Uh, yeah. I mean, Roy Halladay would have been a real close contest had he not, you know, died. Uh, I I don't know that he was going to be in, especially not on the first ballot. Uh, so between that, I mean, for the entire era that CC Sabathia pitched, you'd have four starting pitchers in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's that's not a lot. Like no. I, yeah, I, I also understand think... that the role of the starter has changed over that time, uh, and you know, as a response, they they rack up you know worse counting stats than they used to because they pitch less. But 
I mean, even still, you got to adjust for that. And you yeah. got to let some of the aces from this era in. Yeah. I, I think we have too high of a threshold for starting pitchers to get into the Hall of Fame. Um, but that's a different argument to make for another, for another podcast. No, I mean, so, I agree with that. I think yeah. that especially now with the, the role of the starting pitcher changed, I think we have to not lower our standards, but look at dominance rather than sort of uh, career counting stats. Yeah. So that's all. That's the CC Sabathia debate. Uh, it's an interesting one. I think it's one that will continue for years, especially when he's up for Hall of Fame consideration. I, uh, but now we'll move on to – we're going to introduce a new segment today called uh, Jake and John's Pet Players. And these are players that we, we've been interested in for a couple of weeks and we've wanted to talk about on the podcast. Um, so I'm going to go first. I'm going to talk about a guy who you may or may not know of. Uh, he is second in the AL in war, in FWAR, uh, first among third basemen. And his name is Hunter Dozier. Um, he is hitting. He has, uh, you know, this is his second full year with the Roy. He's on the Royals. If you didn't know that, second full year on the Royals. Uh, he's hitting uh, three. Uh, sorry, he's hitting three forty six with a four forty eight uh, with a one eleven oh two OPS, a one ninety three OPS plus seven home runs, seven RBI. Um, and there was a little bit of talk about him before the season. Uh, the athletic wrote an article about him pretty much a week or two into the season about how, you know, this guy hits the ball hard, but he hasn't seen results sit in the majors yet. And then he started hitting and then the results started coming. Uh, he's 15th in baseball in exit velocity. And I think, you know, he's, he's, might be legit. He's 27 years old, which is on the older side for a guy to break out. But there have been 27-year-olds who've broken out before. Uh, you know, it's about a question whether or not he can continue this is the real thing and whether or not this is a fluke or not. But today, uh, 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 this week, uh, Fangraphs published an article, Craig Edwards, called The Best Header You've Never Heard Of about Hunter Dozier. Um, well, they were wrong. You have heard of him. I've heard of him. I picked him up in fantasy like three weeks ago, and I've loved him since. He's a guy who might still be available in your fantasy league, so if you're listening to this and play fantasy baseball, which is probably high correlation, uh, pick him up if he's available. He's definitely useful. But his plate discipline has really changed this year. Uh, last year, he took a lo- uh, his O-swing percentage was about 35.2, and it's dropped this year to 23.2, which means he's swinging at better pitches, pitches in the zone, um, which is a sizable difference for someone and could really read, lead to a lot of results. So if you want a little bit more in-depth, you know, statistical analysis, um, count swing percentage and stuff like that, I, I suggest you check out the, uh, the Fangraphs article on him. I'm not going to repeat the stats from the Fangraphs article. But he is definitely a guy to keep a lookout on. Um, and I think he, he might be a legit guy. So I mean the the only issue is that he's 27. He was just so bad last year. But yeah. I mean he was a pretty reasonably highly touted prospect for a while. So who knows? I mean, do I think he's a 11.02 OPS type player? No, uh, probably no. not. But never know. I mean, JD Martinez, look at him, yeah. highly touted yeah. prospect, struggled for a while, broke out, and 
now he's great. Yeah. So who do you, who uh, do you want to talk talk about? So I want to talk about Michael Lorenzen because I find him absolutely fascinating. The way that the Reds are using him this year. He's pitched 17.2 innings of two ERA ball. He's got some saves. Uh, he's got two of them. Uh, they're using him as essentially a relief ace. He's the best reliever that they've got right now. Uh, Iglesias has struggled. But more than that, they're also using him as a pinch hitter, a pinch runner, and a defensive replacement in center field. The hardest position to play on the diamond. And he's... Uh, you know, been so good defensively that they, you know, he's only played seven innings there, but they've been close in late innings, like, a, you know, bringing him in in a one-run game in the ninth. Uh, and he's been good enough that uh, I heard Tom Brenneman call him the best outfielder they have on the roster, uh, which to me is just, I mean, so I called him, earlier the perfect marginal baseball player everything that is useful at the margins he does he pinch runs he pinch hits he plays good defense as a fourth outfielder he's a very good middle reliever he's the kind of player who just you know if you were a gm a new age gm looking to find marginal advantages at the edge of your roster. He's all of them built into one. And it's just, it's fascinating to see it because there's never been a player like him. Uh, he's basically the perfect 25th man on any roster. I mean, I remember five years ago when I was just amazed that there were players who could catch and play another position. And I thought that was the perfect, you know, player to have on your roster. I mean, the one good thing that we've seen from this sort of new era in baseball that I like is the two-way player. Uh, and Michael Lorenzen isn't just a two-way player. He's like a three- or four-way player, and it's just fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, he's definitely a, the most useful player you're going to have on your team if you need a, like a slot guy, a uh, guy who can do everything. Uh you know, I mean, and, and let's not, he's only had, you know, seven or eight, eight plate appearances, seven yeah. innings in the outfield, but it's just the potential of, of that kind of player. That's just amazing to me. Yeah. And he's had offensive success in the past. He was a pinch hitter for them last year and he was really good for them as a pinch hitter. So yeah. slug yeah. seven ten on the season. Yeah. Four home runs, six, 168 yeah, OPS. Plus he's, from a pinch hitter, who's your pitcher? As as a career, I mean, he's got a hundred career plate appearances. He's been a league average hitter. You know, yeah, it's he can hit. And he can it's, hit. It's really interesting to watch this guy. He can hit. Yeah. He can pitch. He can field. He can run. He's a five tool guy. That you know is is sort of the perfect guy to stash on your team. Yeah. I, I don't know that we'll see another guy like him just because all the skills he has are so different. You know, it, it's not like there are a lot of guys that are like this. He's like the, you know, the little league player that you would expect. I mean, you wouldn't expect a major leaguer to be able to do all these things at a major league level. Uh, but, I mean, the, the more two-way players, the better. They're 
really interesting guys, and they're very useful. Yep. Yep. Well, that's going to be it for us today. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening, and I hope you will come back again next week to listen to us talk again. So thank you all. I'd really like it if you did. So thank you all, and we will see you next week. See you next week.